Hey everyone, this is Becoming a Bible Nerd. I am Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad that you are joining us. I believe that this ancient Eastern text was never meant to study alone, so we choose to do it in community. We will take one book a semester, one chapter a week, and really dig in to understand the context and the culture that the book was written in so that we can better understand how to apply what God was saying to our lives. Our goal is to equip you and your community to fall more in love with Jesus because you have fallen in love with his word. This season, we are going through the book of Daniel, and today's episode is Daniel chapter 5, The Writing is on the Wall. Well, hey everyone, it's so good to be back again, and we have a lot to cover. I really, really enjoyed this chapter, and this chapter starts about 23 years after chapter 4 ended. King, um, after King Nebuchadnezzar's death, we have a series of people that ruled for a very short period of time, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher their names, but Amel Marduk ruled for about two years. Then Neri Glisser, <laughs> that was Neb's son-in-law, he ruled for about four years, and then Labishi Marduk, nine months. And then we come to Nebuchadnezzar, who took the throne, and from different things that I've researched, nobody knew for sure, but it looks like this could be Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law. Now, that these are the only kings that have been recorded in Babylonian history, so many critics use this to say Daniel wasn't accurate because, of course, we know that this story starts off with um, Belshazzar. But something interesting, um, let me get right, um, I kind of moved my notes around. Okay, so... Um, we know that Nebuchadnezzar was extremely unpopular with the people and with the priest, and we know that he really liked going to battle and leading an army more than leading the nation or the, the empire. So it had been told that he left his son in charge of ruling while he was fighting. Of course, his son, his son Belshazzar, would have been the co-regent king, but there was nothing recorded in history that this was true. But in the 1800s, an archaeologist found four cureform cylinders and a ziggurate um, in Ur. And all four of these cylinders had the same inscriptions on it. And they were um, discovered to say, and it was from Neb Nebuchadnezzar, please bless the son of my heart, Belshazzar. And so... Once again, archaeology is proving the Bible to be true. This was a huge find and, of course, exciting news in the Christian um, world because this was not Jewish archaeology. This was actually from Babylon. So, this chapter starts with Belshi hosting a huge banquet for a thousand plus nobles, and they drank a lot of wine. A lot. He gave orders to bring those gold and silver goblets that is dear old granddad had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. And Belsie wanted wives, concubines, and all the nobles to drink from these and praise their gods. Now, this wasn't normal for women to socialize at these types of parties, and the fact that they're there meant that there was probably going to be some crazy kind of hanky-panky taking place. And this was all going to be part of worship. At this point in Babylon, the Persian um, Persians were invading, and so this party was probably a way to call on Marduk and the other gods to defend their land. And anytime there was worship of these false pagan gods, there was a lot of crazy sex rituals. So they defile the goblets, and as soon as this happened, fingers from a human hand appeared on 
or appeared out of nowhere and wrote on the plaster. Now, this kind of reminded me of uh, the Ten Commandments. We know that those were carved by the hand of God. So, this possibly isn't the first time in human history that a human has seen God's hand. Well, the king was so scared when this happened that he actually soiled his pants. Now, many of you, depending on your translations, might have missed this. But in Daniel chapter 5, verse 6, it literally translates, the knots of his loins were untied. It means that he messed his pants. Um, and this is going to be interesting when we look at some prophecy from Isaiah later. So I want you to hang on to that. Verse 7 tells us that he summons all the magic men, like the forefathers, um, to read the writing. He offers a grand prize to be clothed in purple, receiving a gold chain. And then this was interesting. They would be offered the third highest rulership in the empire. Now, why is that? Well, it's because Belshazzar is only the second in command. Remember, his dad is alive. His dad is fighting in battle. He's the co-regent king, so the best he can do is offer the third to be the third highest ruler. Well, just like before, they cannot do it. So in verse 10, it says the queen. Now, this is not going to be his wife. This is the queen mother, so it's probably his mom, Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. And she comes in, and she noticed that she is not a part of this party that is going on. She enters and she mentions that there is a man who has the spirit of the holy gods in him and that her son should call for him. So Daniel is brought in and he's offered the same blessings that all the enchanters were um, offered. Now, I think we all probably laughed at Daniel's response. He basically says, you can keep your gifts, not interested, but I'll go ahead and tell you this message on the wall. But before he interprets it, he gives Belshi a recap of his granddad's kingdom with the message of repentance, and he addresses Belshazzar's sin. He's actually giving him a chance to repent, but as we see, he doesn't. So the message was this. It was many, many Tekel Parsons, which many historians, historians think this was some sort of coding that had been used in the ancient world that was just not familiar to any of the men in this court. But Daniel, um, by God, was led by the Holy Spirit, and he could interpret this. Now, words in Aramaic and in Hebrew were not, they did not use vowels. And so, in order to do some interpretation, the the interpreter would have to have inserted vowels, and um, this is going to play a, kind of a word game in this last word that they that Daniel um, decoded. But we're going to go ahead and go through these. This was an encrypted message, and meaning was listed twice. And God, this meant that Daniel said that God had numbered the days of the kingdom and brought it to an end. Now, any time in scripture where something is listed twice, it means that this matter has been set by God and he will quickly bring it to pass. And don't we see that happen? It happens immediately. And this really, this message that the days of the kingdom are numbered and can be brought to an end at any time was, is really been a theme throughout the book of Daniel. We see have seen this message time and time again. Well, Tekel um, was translated as you have been weighed in the balance and found deficient. Now, something I thought was really interesting was that Babylon fell on the 16th month of Teshret. Teshret was linked to the constellation of the scales, which is known as Libra today, and is an, um, its annual appearance in the skies in the middle of that month around the 16th. So even 
these astrologers that are in Babylon that are studying their astrology that is pagan had the message in the sky. That's how God works. Sometimes he'll use these pagan messages to speak to the people to say it is so. Peris is the last word. And remember, there's no vowels. And so this could have been a combination of different vowels that could have been inserted. So a couple of different things that it um, could have been translated in is in the word uparsin. That's U-P-A-R-S-I-N. And that means half shekel. Or it could have been paras, P-E-R-A-S. And that means broken and divided in two. Or it could have just been paras, P-A-R-A-S, which means Persia. Any way that you look at it, the message is true that this means that the kingdom had been divided and then given over to the Medes and the Persians. What is crazy is that Daniel is speak as Daniel is speaking, the Medes and the Persians are sneaking into the city and overthrowing it quietly and without a fuss. We know um, from history and many non-biblical writings in the ancient world tells us this is true. So keep in mind that Babylon has double walls and it was known to be unconquerable. The inner wall was 350 feet high. If you're like me, that means nothing, but picture a 35 story building. That was the height of the inner wall and it was 86 feet wide. It was been said and recorded that six chariots could have raced on top of this wall. It was massive. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had diverted the Euphrates River to flow around the smaller front wall. So the entire city was surrounded by walls and moats, and the walls had 250 towers in them that the army could throw things off at the enemy. And the city had enough supplies to last 20 years if they were ever trapped inside. This is doomsday prepping at its finest. So the Persian army in the north diverted this Euphrates River, which blocked it off. This lowered the flow into Babylon, and the enemies literally snuck under the walls. The people in the inner city were so busy partying, they didn't even know what had taken place for days. So back to verse 29. Belshi gave an order and clothed Daniel in purple and gave him the chain, and he got a big promotion. But later that night, Belshazzar was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. I think it's so interesting that Daniel was spared once again by the grace of God. Now, this is something that's really cool. In Isaiah 44, verses 24 through 27, keep in mind this is in 740 BC, 200 years before any of these characters were born. Isaiah prophesied this. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer who formed you in the womb... I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the, and overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants, like Daniel, and who feel, fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited and the towns of Judah shall be rebuilt. And of their ruins, I will restore them. Who says of the watery deep, be dry, I will dry up your streams. Now, this is talking about Cyrus. This chapter ends saying Darius the Mede um, took over. We don't know if that is a general 
or exactly who he is, but we know the conqueror of this empire is Cyrus the Great. And this prophecy in Isaiah is talking about him. Cyrus will go on to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and restore them. And in verse 27, like I said, in Isaiah, it will say, um, he says to the watery deep, be dry, will dry up your streams. That's exactly what happened when the Persian Empire came into Babylon. The streams were dried up. They were able to speak in. Now, verse 28 says, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and I will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple let its foundations be laid. Remember, it is God who allows kings to be put in place and he can remove them at his whim. Verse 25 of Isaiah, I mean, I'm sorry, chapter 25 in the King James Version goes on to say this. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him. I will loosen the loins of kings to open before him the two levied gates and the gates shall not be shut. I encourage you to read all of Isaiah 25. This is happening 200 years before the Lord show, um, carried any of this out. But it says that it will he will loosen the loins of kings. And that is exactly what is recorded in the chapter 5 of Daniel, that um, Belshazzar's loins were loosed and then his kingdom was overthrown. My takeaways in this chapter, um, I have two. The first one is that God seems to have so much patience for King Nebuchadnezzar, which brought me to my knees. I was in awe of his love and his pursuit of us. And then you see that he has very little patience for Belshazzar. A couple of ideas were rolling in my mind. When King Nebi ruled, this empire knew very little about the God of Israel. And we see that nothing... Um, we see that when nothing is known about him, he'll go to great lengths to make himself known with all the grace extended along the way. We, he seems to hold a different standard to those who had a chance to hear but then rejected the truth. Really, um, where I live is in the Bible Belt, and we see two to three churches on every corner, and there's plenty of chances to hear the truth. I'm not saying this to scare anyone, but it seems like that grace starts trickling down or are slowly being removed when people have the chance to hear, but they just constantly reject it. And so I'm saying this today to um, a people that we need to repent and truly follow him. Let's not take grace for granted and let's not ride the faith of our parents or grandparents' coattails. Let's be a people who worship in spirit and truth. Let's be authentic and let's put him first. Another takeaway that I had, um, which was a pretty scary one, is how quickly our kids can forget our faith. We see Nebuchadnezzar turned his life towards God and proclaimed his testimony to the entire kingdom, signing decrees and demanding that they be read throughout the kingdom. I believe that the queen mother, there was a good chance that she was saved. She wasn't participating in this party, and she comes in quickly to tell her son about Daniel, and then she reminds him of the story of the goodness of God throughout um, Nebuchadnezzar's later life. And we see that 23 years later, his grandson is in complete rebellion, doesn't even know the story of his grandfather. It doesn't seem like the faith got passed down even two generations. Um, something I want to leave you with is something that one of my Bible school teachers would always say. 
What one generation will tolerate, the next will practice. If we slack on our faith and just tolerate sin and think, oh, well, this isn't that big a deal, I promise you the next generation will practice it. Passing our faith takes intentionality, and it takes us living and walking out Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to take some time to read this to you. Deuteronomy 6, this is so important. And starting in verse 1, it says, These are the commands, decrees, and laws that the Lord God directs me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing to Jordan, into Jordan to possess so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord as long as you live by keeping all of his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear Israel, and be careful to obey it so that it will go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, just um, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. This is where it really gets important. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength. These commands I have given you today to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as a symbol to your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and in your gates. Verse 10, when the Lord your God brings you to the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Then when you eat, you are satisfied. Be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. I know that was long, but what God was telling um Joshua, as they entered the land of Israel, is do not forget the promises that God gave your ancestors. Talk about them talk about them daily throughout the day with your children. Impress them. Write them on the door frames of your houses. Bind them to your foreheads. Talk about this day in and day out with your kids. Um, remember that when you possess this land, the land already had vineyards planted and, and houses there. The children of Israel didn't have to do anything. They just had to go in. The Lord conquered the land for them, and they just got to possess it. And, and it is so important that we pass God's promises and his goodness and all of the things down to our children. This isn't something that just happens by happenstance. This isn't something that even happens by bringing them once or twice a month to church. It is something that we daily need to be talking about and teaching to them. It was literally woven throughout Jewish culture and needs to be woven throughout our days. We have to put the time and effort into the same traditions that God commanded of his people. They sat around weekly at Sabbath meals, telling the stories of old, memorizing scripture. And we need to form our own traditions that spend time to impart our faith to our kids. How Neely and I do this is by faithfully, or faithfully, weekly faith talks. We set aside one day a week when we eat a dinner, we sit around the table, we talk about the goodness of God, and then we end up playing some kind of fun game. It's something that our kids look forward to. It's a fun atmosphere. It's lighthearted. We, we eat their favorite foods, but they love this time. And it's not something that's like, oh, we've got to sit around and read the Bible. When you make it fun, it's exciting for them. They look forward to it and they actually 
ask for it. Um, at the age that my kids are at, we actually are going through Daniel right now um, with our kids. And we just kind of take turns reading about five scriptures at a time. Maybe Salem will read five, and then we stop and talk about what that means. And then Edie will read five verses. Then we stop and talk about what that means. When they were little, there are all kinds of children's Bibles that um, I love the play and pray Bible. It will tell Bible stories and then it has silly songs and art projects and all different things that you can do that go along with the chapter. You don't even have to come up with it. They come up with it for you. But as they get older, it's so important to teach them how to actually open up the Word of God for themselves and read. Anyway, I'll leave you with that. Some really good things to think about and to talk about in this chapter. I hope you're gathering around a table. If you're listening, gathering around a table, hey, I'm so excited that you are doing this together. Um, I just really encourage you to take time to assign someone in your group to do what I just did today before y'all even tune in with me. Assign someone to talk about what they learned for about 15 minutes and then allow everyone else to chime in after that. And then next week, assign someone else to do the same. It doesn't matter if you read straight from your notes or if you're a natural born teacher with uh, pictures and guides. I'm having a good time in my small group. I have a couple of teachers, retired teachers, and they come with graphics and all kinds of things. And I'm just soaking up the goodness of their teaching. It doesn't matter how long you've been on this journey. Um, I promise you, anybody that presents, you will have some new takeaways from them. Anyway, as always, Please rate us, like us, share us, um, and, and that will get the, the Word of God into other people's hands. And then tell us what this study is doing for you. That blesses us and encourages us to keep on going. But until next week, I hope you enjoy your time in God's Word. Happy reading, and we'll see you then.